Our new series that we're opening up the fall with starts next weekend, and it's called The Glorious Gospel. And um, we're going to get recentered in our primary message. I don't know if you realize this, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is under assault in our day. There are people, there are pastors, there are authors, writers who are wanting to dilute the gospel by either adding something to it or taking something away from it. So we're going to look at the gospel message. We're going to look at it from a bunch of different angles. We're going to expose some false gospels that are floating around our culture these days. We're going to come to understand that Jesus is the gospel. And so it's going to be a great series to invite friends to. And uh, I hope that you will. I hope that you'll make it a point of being here all during that series. And um, I am just thrilled out of my mind to be able to dive into that, that great stuff. But today, I am posed with a challenge, a daunting assignment, I think. And... uh, So I hope I'm up for it. My challenge for today is to persuade and convince those of you who manage to successfully resist Pastor Jay's onslaught last week, and you're still standing back saying, you know, I'm not convinced I need to be in a small group. I'm not convinced I need to be living in in Christian community with some others. And it's my job today to tip the scales and push you across the line. And that's a lot of pressure. I'm just feeling a lot of weight. And every, every year, this time of year, in August, we challenge our people to get in small groups for the fall. And I always feel this pressure. Like, okay, you know, maybe I could say it just right this year. You know, if I could find the, the, right, the right biblical passage or the right argument or, or just say it the right way, maybe some of you will, you know, take that step and, and dive in. And so... And so that's a lot of pressure, and I, I feel it again this year. And so I started preparing for this message, and I thought, well, what, what could I say this year that'll, that'll speak to the holdouts, the ones who haven't crossed the line yet? And I started thinking about this and kind of thumbing through some files mentally and then thumbing through some files physically that I have, kind of building a case that every believer should be involved in a small group of some sort. I heard Andy Stanley a few weeks ago talking to his church, and he said this. He said, hey, all of you come on weekends and you sit in rows here, and that's great. We're glad that you do. But if you only ever come and sit in rows and never make it into a circle where you're sitting with people face-to-face and opening yourselves up to each other, then then you're missing out on what the church is really all about. And uh, I agree with him. I I, I think he's right. So here I am under this immense pressure to try to convince you guys to get involved in a small group this fall. And some of you, you know, you've become a master at resisting it every year. You know, you kind of brace yourself and build up your resistance. Others of you strategically plan your vacations to be gone during that time. But um, so I started thinking, you know, what, God, what, what do you want me to say this year? What's going to move people? What's going to cause them to cross the line? And so I had our team set up this little uh, small group kind of setting up here. It's kind of nice. Uh, just looking at this kind of reminds me of some small groups that I've led over the years where nobody showed up. 
you know, I'm sitting there in the living room, and my wife's made the refreshments, and we're all ready, you know, and it's like, all righty, you know, it's 7 o'clock, and it's uh, 7.15, and 7.30, and okay, I guess it's going to be a small, small group tonight. Me and my wife and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you know, getting together for a small group. I think it's important to just be honest with each other and, and to say, you know, it's not fair to you to give the impression. Say, so you know what, if you get in a small group, everything's going to be wonderful. There will be no disappointments. The truth is that if you take the step to get involved in a small group, it can be kind of messy. As people start getting into each other's lives and building relationships and taking masks off and there can be disappointments. People let, let you down or let each other down. I, I think we need to be fair. I think we need to be honest about that. I don't want to give you the impression that if you take that step that it's all going to be glorious and wonderful all the time. We're people. We got our junk. We're messed up. But I do believe it's worth it. So anyway, I started going through my files. You know, okay, what can I pull out this year? What, what could really, you know, move those holdouts? So I pulled out my file on home groups in the early church. I thought, yeah, I can pull out the old early church home group argument. That'll move them. You know what that is, right? If you read the book of Acts and, and look into the history of that very first Christian church in Jerusalem, it says very clearly that they met in both a large group setting like this and in small group settings. In Acts 2, it says that they gathered on the weekend in the temple courts, huge open setting where thousands of people could gather, and it says they met in homes and broke bread from home to home, home-sized groups. So those first century Christian believers must have felt that both of these settings are very, very critical for discipleship, for growing in Christ. In fact, there weren't any church buildings there weren't any church buildings for several hundred years after the start of Christianity. So really, when you think about, you know, where did church take place in those days, church was really what happened in that home group. And I reviewed all that in my mind and looked through my file, and I thought, maybe, maybe that'll get them. But we've used that before, haven't we? And uh, some of you have been able to just, you know, kind of say, well, you know, that was back in the first century. We live in the 21st century, so... Give me something else, okay? So I pulled out my, uh, my file folder on the example of Jesus Christ. Yeah, maybe I should use that one this year. You know, Jesus believed in small groups. You know that, right? In fact, in his ministry, after he was tested in the wilderness and then was baptized by John in the Jordan, he launched his ministry, he inaugurated his ministry basically by starting a small group. He prayed all night, he selected 12 guys, and he said, I want you to come and be with me. And they spent the next three years basically doing life together, learning about each other, learning to love each other, on mission together, on task together. He discipled them in a small group setting. And I thought, man, that's a pretty persuasive argument that those of us who want to follow Jesus, who want to be like Jesus, hey, he evidently believed in small groups. Maybe I should pull that one out and use it. And I thought, well, 
maybe, or maybe I should uh, pull out my file folder on the one and others of the New Testament. This is the one that Jay so masterfully challenged us with last week. And this case basically says, look, if you read the New Testament, there are 53 different commands that include that phrase, one another. Love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another, admonish one another, and so forth and so on. And you could make the case that if if you and I want to be biblical New Testament Christians carrying out those one another commands, it's hard to do in a group of four or five hundred people, isn't it? But it makes sense in a smaller setting with six or eight or ten or twelve people. But of course, Jay made that case last week, and I couldn't do it any better than him, so I said, you know, let's go to the next one. Then I thought, hey, I know what I can do. I can pull out the big guns. I can can persuade the staunchest resistor with this folder right here, the theological argument for getting in a small group. This is good. Think, Think about this. God is a small group. You ever think about that? I mean, the Bible portrays God as one essence manifested in three persons, three distinct personalities. We call them the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they've lived together in authentic community for eons, for millennia, loving each other, serving each other, adoring each other, on mission together. God is is a small group. So he must believe in small groups because he is one. And if you want to be godly, you will too. I wonder what God's small group is like when they get together, the Trinity. You know, the refreshments got to be off the charts, out of this world. The worship time. I mean, think about that. The Bible study time. God is a small group. I thought, man, if I just, you know, take that one out and give them that one, that's going to cause them to run out of here, run to the Connection Center, grab three or four cards off the wall and say, I'm going to get in a small group because I want to be more like God. Maybe. Maybe that'll push you across the line. What could I use this year, God? Maybe the vaunted Ecclesiastes 4 argument. It's a good one. I thought about using this one. It's strong. It's good. It goes directly to some deep needs that all of us feel. Take a look at this. It's on your your outline. It'll come up on the screens. Let's read Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 together. Out loud, okay? Here we go. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, yes. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The writer of Ecclesiastes is basically saying, look, we need each other. We need each other. To try to live this following Jesus life solo, all alone, 
is not wise, he would make a case. But if you can have a circle of comrades around you, not only will you be more productive, what it says, they have a good return for their labor, but you will find support and encouragement from those circle of comrades. You know, as a pastor, it pains me when I hear someone who falls down emotionally, spiritually, maritally, financially, just trips and falls and looks around and has no one to help them up. And they call the church, and that's fine, but it's like, are you in a small group? Do you have some folks around you that says when you fall down, if if you've got some comrades, they can support you and help lift you back up, but pity the person who has no one to help them up. It says there's strength in small groups, in having partners. It says you can generate some spiritual heat, some spiritual passion together, more so than if you're just trying to stir that up on your own. It says a cord of three strands isn't quickly broken. You'll you'll strengthen each other. You can defend each other, it says, back to back. But one alone is vulnerable. This is a powerful case, I think, for being in a small group. Lord, should I pull that one out this year and use that? What else you got? How about this idea of brother's keeper that we've been talking about for about a year around here? And some of you hear that, hear us use that term, hey, this is our brother's keeper prayer time. We're going to be a brother's keeper church or culture. You're like, what does that mean? <laughs> Maybe you're newer. And so we're reminded of that story back in Genesis where you had the two brothers, right? Names were Cain and Abel. And uh, each of them were called upon to bring sacrifices to God. And Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain brought a, an offering from his garden. And it says that God accepted and looked favorably on Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's sacrifice. Because Abel understood even way back then that sin has to be paid for by the shedding of blood. And Cain thought, no, I can bring the work of my hands. And God said, no. And Abel grew, or Cain grew so resentful of his brother Abel, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, who always does everything right and everybody loves him. He nursed that resentment and nursed it and fanned it into flames and it turned into bitterness and malice. And one day out in a field, he killed his own brother, murdered him. Wiped his hands of that. God came after him and said, where's your brother Abel? At which point Cain uttered that infamous phrase that we all know. Which, what is it? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, what are you saying, God? Are, are you saying that I should be looking out for my brother? Are you, are, are you implying that I'm responsible to you for the well-being of my brother? Is that what you're saying? And the answer is, yep. That's exactly what I'm saying. And we've taken that we're saying we want to be a brother's keeper church where we feel responsible to God for each other's well-being. And I'm finding that, that Christians who've been steeped in a consumer culture, this is like a shock treatment to them. Because basically what we're saying is you need to be in a small group. You need to be living in community, not just for you, but for them. Like for the other people who are in that group. They need you. So if you're saying, you know, if you're standing back saying, I don't have any needs, I'm fine, I don't need it. No, no, no. 
Others need you. You bring something to the table. You have spiritual gifts to offer. You have wisdom. You have experience. Maybe you have some knowledge of the word of God. Others need you. And if you're not there, they are suffering. Does this make sense? It's a twist, isn't it? Just a couple nights ago, I was in our small group. And uh, we were gathered together and just enjoying each other, enjoying life. And two of the people in our group have felt prompted by the Spirit of God to, to launch out into a new small group and start a new group, give birth. And so they came to the middle of the living room there, and we all gathered around and prayed for them. God, you know, anoint them and prepare them. And then they sat down, and one of the men in our group started to really share on a deep level. He just kind of opened up and shared struggles in his in his own heart, in his marriage, in his job, and he just kind of bared his soul. And we said, hey, man, come on, come on over. We want to pray for you. He sat in the middle of the room, and we all gathered around, and I kneeled down and put my hand on his leg, and I just started praying, God, you know, meet this guy, meet my brother where he's at, and, and bring your grace and mercy and strength. And, and we prayed for him as a group. I drove home a little bit later on that night, and I thought I had this thought. You know, I needed to be at small group tonight. Not for me, but for him. He needed my prayers, all of our prayers. He needed us. And we were there, and as a result, we could be the channels of God's grace into his life through our touch, through our prayers. I needed to be there tonight for him. And I would say to you, if... If you're not in a small group, there are people in a small group who are missing out because you're not there speaking into their life, ministering into their life. I want to correct a misconception, I think, that I heard. You know, Pastor Jay had these cards, had you fill out these cards last week. and Pastor Jay was pretty strong in imploring us to get in small groups, was he not? And somebody wrote on the card, well... Pastor Jay, you're mean, and we like Pastor Steve because he doesn't think that we have to be in small groups, and he says we can worship at whatever level we're comfortable. And So let me clarify. <laughs> I think you need to be in a small group. I really do. I'm in a small group. I'm in four small groups when I sat down and thought about it. I'm in a life group, and I'm in three other groups. You need to be in a small group. Why? For you? Yeah. But for others who can benefit from what you, you have to offer. So I thought, Lord, should I bring up that argument, the brother's keeper argument, the Ecclesiastes 4 argument, the theological, you know. And I pulled out my folder. It says the sociological and psychological case for being in a small group. Maybe I should bring that up. Maybe that will push somebody over the line this year. You know, even... Secular sociologists, researchers have come to the conclusion that human beings just need meaningful connections, meaningful relationships to be healthy in their lives, that we all desire a sense of belonging, a place where we feel at home, where we're accepted and loved and affirmed and people know us and we know them, a place of belonging. Why do you think the bars are full every night as people are seeking that out, but a much healthier, better place would be in a, a small group, don't you think? And, of course, the psychologists tell us that so many ailments, so many mental disorders and other things 
Not all, but many of them can be traced back in a person's life who's suffering from those, traced back to a lack of meaningful connections. So I thought, well, could I make that case? Would that be the one that would move people? And I thought, well, if none of those are effective, I know it would be effective. Certainly if we had people share testimonies, share their stories of being in small groups, and we could do that. I have no doubt we could ask for a show of hands this morning of people who are in small groups, have been blessed through that experience, and we could take a mic around. And I love hearing stories, don't you? Got some emails this week of people who are saying, you know, everybody needs to be in a small group. Some of you maybe wouldn't even be moved by that. So as I'm thinking and preparing, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to use any of those arguments. And I'm going to release myself from the pressure of having to say just the right thing in just the right way so that some of you holdouts will step across the line. I'm going to free myself from all of that. Ah, it feels good. God is sovereign. And I'm just going to say this to you. If none of those other reasons move you, you know, the early church argument, the example of Jesus, the one another's brother's keeper, the theological argument, the sociological, psychological, if testimonies wouldn't move you, then do this. Get in a small group for me. (laughs) Do it for me. Make my day, make my joy complete, make me happy Get in a small group. You say you've got to be the most self-absorbed, self-centered, arrogant pastor I've ever heard. And I want you to know there's a biblical precedent for this. You're like, what? Philippians chapter 2. Here's what it says. This is Paul writing to some church people that he loved deeply. And I do love you deeply. Here's what he wrote. Philippians 2.1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Translated, make my day. Make me happy by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You can make my day, he said. If you've experienced the benefits of being in Christ Jesus and having that high and lofty position, if you will seek oneness, transparency, intimacy with each other and get get on the same page and be one, you're going to make my joy complete. You're going to make me very, very happy. That's what he was saying. John says the same thing a few books later. Make me happy. About a year ago, somebody asked me what my vision was for this church, and I didn't hesitate. (laughs) I said, in my heart, what I see is God making us into, forming us into a transformational community where people's lives are being changed every day by the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. A community that's changing, that's morphing, that's, that's being changed by Jesus Christ as we pursue God connect with a team, and serve others together. You've heard us talk about these things. As we pursue God together in response to his pursuit of us. As we form 
teams together, small groups. We connect, and as we then serve others together. And I said that, and then I went home and I wrote it out. I, I said, i got to put words to this. And here's what I wrote for that second piece, that connecting piece. I titled the file, What I Ache For. And I do, I still, I ache for this, to be a part of a church that looks like this, connecting with a team. I dream of a church full of people who are so committed to doing life together in community that absolutely everyone is connected to a team. No one is living as an island. And it's not just the adults. Even our children and teenagers embrace this value deeply and are actively recruiting their school friends to join them for small group. I can't have even a single conversation with someone young or old who doesn't immediately start gushing about the group that they're a part of. It seems like literally everyone is connected with teammates that they are devoted to. I regularly hear of new people being drawn into groups as they discover the joy of authentic community, some for the very first time. It's a regular occurrence at New Life, or excuse me, it's a regular occurrence for New Lifers to accost me in the lobby and other pastors as well to tell us about the latest breakthroughs that they're seeing in their small group. Their eyes are sparkling as they relate the story of yet another person whose skepticism and spiritual hardness is melting under the flame of God's truth and love coming from their group. It's become commonplace to see people totally transformed through through experiencing the gospel lived out in real community as walls of fear come down, intellectual barriers are overcome, masks come off, And people see true transparency in their leaders and in their teammates who are devoted to each other. It's disarming to even the most cynical doubter. A dozen different people every week tell me how much they love their small group and consider them family. I hear of small group members vacationing together, meeting each other's financial needs, watching each other's children, Encouraging each other as parents, serving in ministry together, and reaching out together to love their unsaved friends to Jesus. I'm stunned to realize that there are now people being saved and added to the church every day as a result of the relentless, persistent love of small group members for their lost friends. One guy I'd never met before came up to me with a big grin, told me he'd been recently ambushed by Jesus through the overwhelming love of a small group at New Life who loved him and loved him and loved him until he finally asked why. And when he heard the gospel, his life was forever changed. Many weekend celebrations are now capped off with raucous baptisms where small group leaders baptize new followers of Jesus, one to him by their group, and the shouting and the applause is deafening as each new follower comes out of the water pumping their fists in the air to the wild cheers of their small group. And others who know the feeling. The sense of community is palpable, it's contagious, it's hard for anybody to resist, and no one wants to. As groups grow and new leaders are raised up from within, I regularly hear of wild birthday parties being thrown as new leadership teams are commissioned and sent out and new groups are birthed. Now, I added this next part just this week, okay? Our small group director, Jay Firebaugh, is no longer annoyed and irritable that so many people aren't in small groups. In fact, he's so happy that he even likes cottage cheese now. A true transformation. In our, we, in our weekly meeting, while munching on cottage cheese, he excitedly tells me that it seems like everyone now views small group participation as essential 
not just nice for some other folks. He's thrilled to report that hundreds of new groups are forming all over central Ohio and that new leaders are receiving oversight, encouragement, support, and training through an expanding network of coaches and pastors. Some days I just shake my head in amazement as I realize that the kingdom of God is now spreading like a virus. It's spreading virally throughout the region, and it's totally out of control. It seems that everybody is growing spiritually through connecting and living in authentic community, through the gospel being lived out, and God is truly being glorified. Our people are believing like never before that they truly are their brother's keeper, their sister's keeper, and best of all, Jesus' mighty name is being made famous all over the city. Even the most cynical of non-believers has to admit that what they observe among Jesus' followers is something supernatural. And they are often overheard to exclaim, See how they love each other, those followers of Jesus. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. So I say, that's, that. I ache for that. So if you don't have any other good reason to get in a small group, do it for me. Make my joy complete. Make my day. Make me happy. Turn that from vision to reality. I'll close with uh, this word from the book of Acts. It's a description of those early first century believers and how they lived. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved.